0: Welcome to another conversation about some of the hottest topics in tech, machine learning and deep learning. We're joined by our good friend Keith Manthe, the CTO of Analytics for Dell EMC's Unstructured Data Division. Keith talked to us about the architectural components that make up a good machine learning environment, and he discussed real-life lessons in helping organizations around the world achieve their deep learning aspirations. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special discount available to our listeners want to attend strata or AI conferences this year and now you're listening to the big data beard hi folks this is Corey Minton with the big data beard along for another exciting ride and journey through exciting happenings in the big data ecosystem I'm joined today by a couple of bearded gentlemen Kyle and Brett and uh, we are excited because you know, there's a lot of hot topics in big data, it's, uh, there's a lot of passe topics, but the one that is in vogue right now, probably more than ever, is this concept of deep learning. And we're seeing deep learning and machine learning and AI confusion everywhere. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time with somebody who could help us unpack and understand, you know, really from that architect and that data engineer perspective, what does all this stuff mean? And what are the architectural tenets of um, deep learning, and help us understand how we can help our enterprises achieve their objectives with deep learning? So I'm very excited to have joining us today, Mr. Keith Manthi, the CTO for the Unstructured Division at Dell EMC. Keith, welcome. Thank you. Excellent. Keith, Um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, again, deep learning, machine learning, super interesting. And we read your blog post that was really the basis for a lot of our, kind of the beginning of our conversations. One thing I like about this is is you start out kind of unpacking this thing for me. But before we unpack it, what I want to understand is, is why is machine learning and deep learning, why do you think it's so hot right now? You know,
1: I think the best way to describe it is, you know, We've been fascinated as a culture with AI since the 40s, you know, and if you go back, you look at it, we still hold the Turing test, something that was invented in 1943, if I remember correctly, as, you know, one of the pinnacles of you've succeeded. So here our benchmark is, you know, seven years old, and we're we're starting to achieve a, a level of, you know, capabilities that can ultimately achieve it. And so, you know, what's interesting was machine learning went through all the vogue and, and certainly had a lot of, uh, of great press, but it also had a very, very dark side. And, you know, I, I say that, and not sort of in a negative way, but if you look at some of the early iterations of machine learnings, um, there was a whole fascination um, sometimes around, you know, detecting faces, detecting pictures, detecting um, different things. And one of the, the real you know, benefits was if you had something that it could fully construct, like the picture of a cat or, you know, the picture of a child, it was really good at sort of assessing and it, you know, detecting age and detecting motions. But if you had something it couldn't account for, so maybe a wounded warrior with a traumatic brain injury and it wasn't able to handle, you know, nuances, it sort of went through a phase where you know, machine learning sort of took a dark period because it couldn't account for the bad data, the bad data being something not perfect in a picture. And now, you know, the reason why deep learning is suddenly all the vogue is they're starting to realize that you can create a model where you can actually allow it to discount parts. It can also create a model where it doesn't need everything. And a great example is one of the pictures I use um, in talking a lot is Literally the picture of two legs of a chair. And Deep Learning has figured out that that's a chair. It doesn't need where you sit. It doesn't need the back. It doesn't need all four legs. It literally just has two legs of the chair. And as we talk to businesses and we talk to, you know, different consumer groups out there and customers and, you know, and all the things, the number one thing businesses tell me is they have a lot of bad data. And so if there's not a way for them to, you know, have, you know, capabilities to sort of discount the bad data... The results are going to get varied, and so yeah. that's sort of you know one of the interesting things is the technology sort of caught up, and you know, and the things that we've been fascinated about for years are now sort of coming to fruition. If you want to look at it that way.
0: Yeah, it feels like we came out of this. Um, I think I've heard the term a number of times, like a a machine learning winter or an AI winter. Where there was these these there was this peak in uh, kind of interest as um, digitization of information sort of started, and then like you said, there were some struggles and stumbles along the way. Combined with, I think, uh, science fiction, we saw a whole bunch of really bad examples of what AI could turn into. Thank you, Skynet and Terminator, you jerks. Um, and then and then <laughs> and then we saw this thing, which was, hey, and I actually saw a comment by Jeff Dean from uh, Google the other day. It's like the The ubiquity of uh, of data now, like the amount of digitized data, it's reached it's reached that critical mass uh, that was important for for machine learning and deep learning to take off, and the b- ubiquity of computing capabilities and the frameworks that could handle large amounts of data and develop models that you, as you said, were were good. It's all kind of come to a head, so it feels like we're in kind of this this AI or this deep learning spring that's ahead of us so I guess one thing that and we've we've talked about kind of lumped them all together I'm curious your opinion and kind of the differences between if you're if you're a data engineer kind of an architect like how would you understand the difference between what's machine learning versus deep learning
1: sure so if if I'm going to you know break it down um you know just uh, I'll I'll do the full categorization because I get often asked I mean so, so, like you said, if we were to sort of define um you know different categories for what they are, I like to call AI science fiction. And so if I'm gonna I love your your reference because you know really it boils back to forward thinking, but never something we can truly achieve. Machine learning was, you know, so if I went in and did, you know, any kind of Hadoop model with Mahout, whether it's Spark ML lib or any of the other technologies and I wanted to you know, do some form of bucketization you know, where I wanted to potentially take a, a pile of data and then classify it into a few different strains and then try to then assign you know, maybe some values to that using you know, either you know, truly unsupervised type of techniques. Maybe they were supervised, but yet you know, the focus there was the engineer did all the feature selection manually the libraries really were working upon just sort of a framework where um, magic sort of happened. And, and I don't say that in sort of the, the, the glib way, but you, there wasn't a whole lot of dials or hyperparameters or ways that you could go in and tune it. You could choose ensemble models. You could choose a different way to do um, you know, different types of models. But there wasn't a lot of granularity that you could dial into what you were doing. You couldn't discount bad data unless you threw it out ahead of time. You couldn't discount, you know, some of the values, and so whatever came out of it in some of the early iterations, and you know, likely if you did any kind of any machine learning up until probably before two years ago, it was machine learning. It was, you know, no matter what it was, if. Where we're starting to see in the deep learning realm, usually you will start to see a construct. Uh, there's lots of them. Um, there's lots of names that go with them. You know, traditionally, they will have some form of recursive capabilities. It could be called a convolutional neural network. It could be called recursive neural network. It could be called recurrent. Um, I've seen a lot of those. You could have you know, different types of capabilities. But really what it, it's trying to do is it's trying to emulate sort of how the brain works so you'll see a series of passes and different layers the idea is it's instead of trying to go through and do it all in one large massive pass to try and categorize you know if we want to go back to the infamous uh, data set I think everybody who's ever done a machine learning curse is going to play with the uh, the flower data set And so, you know, if you were to do that in deep learning, it now starts to take over some of the hyperparameters. You can start to actually allow it to do feature selection. What I mean by that is it will have the ability to discount data that maybe doesn't contribute to the end goal. And so, you know, there's a lot of libraries out there. Um, Some of them are in the Hadoop and Spark spectrum, like Intel's Big DL. You have... uh, deep learning for J, and some of the other, you know, Spark with TensorFlow are sort of in the, you'll see it in the Hadoop and Spark landscape. You also are starting to see a real big influx where HPC and high-performance computing are back in vogue, and you'll see libraries like TensorFlow, uh, Tiano, Torch, PyTorch, uh, Cognitive Toolkit, FA2. And so those are really focused um, on the high performance with the idea you have iterative passes within a high performance computing. And so that's really been sort of the evolution in the last two years. And almost every machine learning book that I've actually read or looked at lately um, really starts to include all of the deep learning, even if they say uh, machine learning, they're starting to include a lot of the deep learning embedded into it. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but um, you know, really what you'll see is you do anything where you see the term neural net, you're probably doing deep learning.
0: Okay. No, that makes sense because machine learning, right, is applying old math in new ways. Deep learning is now how do you automate and use maybe old math, maybe new math, maybe new programming capabilities to allow the model to improve itself. Right, and to go back over the data more than once—not so much in one batch, but or start to make separate passes, ensembling criteria and and, and models. That's really cool. I get that. Now, one thing that I I'm generally I uh, think I think is accurate. Maybe I, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But whether it's deep learning or machine learning, or frankly, you could even argue some of the you know sort of the big data stuff, there seems to be some architectural tenants that you know some macros that emerge across all those and maybe even in the HPC space and in your blog you talk about sort of these these four pillars of you know architectural tenants and i want to unpack a little bit of those so so tell us what are those critical kind of architectural components that you see and are they are they kind of g- generally true of both
1: mldl and big data sort of and you know what what gets interesting is a lot of it has to do with how the libraries have built them. Um, you know, and some of it has to do with the architecture and the ecosystem that lives below it. Compute, you know, being probably the, the most you know, fundamental one that everybody thinks about. And you know, compute, I say that specifically because you have um, a standard CPU with dies and cores. You also now have the rise of uh, video uh, GPU, otherwise known as, where you now have the ability to use video cards with you know a, a very limited capability, and I'm not knocking them. They're 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 not really great at doing a lot, but they can do a lot with a little, and and just to give you an idea of order of magnitude, which is why we're starting to see GPUs take off. So if I have a top of the line, uh, two, two, core, um, thirty or two die thirty six core machine, so I get seventy two cores out of a, a, a server, that will yield me seventy two concurrent threads. If I take two GPU, you know, so just standard video card. Well, okay, so not super standard, but um, some high tech video cards. How about mm-hmm. that? With you can't you
0: G- can't get you can't get the standard ones anymore. Everybody's using them for Bitcoin miners. You got to buy the high end ones.
1: Very true. Um, and so from that standpoint, um, two GPUs will deliver you and the math. Uh, everybody's got their different math, but it's very easy to to go in and back into it. About three hundred and forty four thousand concurrent processes out of two wow. GPU cards. And so you know what you're seeing is. Um, Really, when, when you broke down you know, sort of uh, some of the libraries that you'll see out there, they're still very, very tailored to compute, which is there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different model and a different approach. A lot of what we're seeing on the HPC side, and I expect at some point we'll start to see it sort of bleed back into you know, Hadoop and Spark layer a lot more, just because the sheer power uh, ratio of a footprint of two GPUs that can deliver 344,000 connections is just unheard of. But, you know, what you're able to then do is take a standard model and break it into really fine components. And so, you know, really that's sort of the difference of what we're seeing now with, you know, sort of as you look at it from an architecture perspective. You know, if I'm going to throw a Hadoop workload out there, I'm going to throw a machine learning or a deep learning job on there. I know the resources in the cluster. I know the storage in the cluster. I know the bandwidth in the cluster. And so that's sort of a fixed capacity, and you know it's a little more in the box. Nothing negative with it, or wrong with it, or negative about it. It's just that sort of your model. What we're seeing with some of the HPC side is it actually can be dialed up and dialed down. And while that sounds weird, um, you know, as you go to build some of these models, you can intentionally amplify the effect. And what I mean by that is, if I want to put in a series of texts. There are ways that I can build a model to actually make the output size 10x, so it literally will allow me uh, finer granularity. Same thing can be done with a picture, so I can actually blow it up, or I can shrink it. So there's ways I can actually subsampling is the official term they refer to it, and and, you know the way you do it is through padding. And so you know what we're seeing is you have the ability with the compute and the multiple tiers now with this massive. Ability with with a very small cost. I mean, two GPUs in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of money. I mean, they're high end as you say, but you know, especially with the Bitcoin miners, but they're not a lot of money. And so what we're starting to see is, you know, you could have a rack of you know very very new servers with each of them having two or four, uh, you know, NVIDIA cards in them, and you can do a whole lot of damage.
0: <laughs> yeah network is key. The other one is uh, you can do a whole lot of damage to your power supplies <laughs> because man, those GPUs are power suckers. Actually, one thing that's interesting I've, I've seen a lot of work um the the team from um, Google uh, brain uh, out, oh, yeah, outlined Google a bunch brain. of their their, outla- their their kind of their year interview 2017. One thing I noticed, they talked a lot about the TensorFlow, the TPU uh, evolution and kind of the TensorFlow cloud. What are your thoughts on those purpose-built ASICs things like, you know, purpose-built ASICs uh, FPGAs in context of machine learning and deep learning?
1: So, let me be very very, you know, specific. It's, you know, we have, you know, today everybody refers to a GPU, which is a single product from a single manufacturer. Make no mistake that that is not lost on every uh, chip fabricator out there. So, to your point, now Google has a TPU. I cannot say what I know, but I'm aware that the competition are coming out with their own equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yes, we call a Kleenex a you know Kleenex, even if we mean a tissue. So, you know, how much bleed over we have between, you know, what is a GPU, what is a TPU? There will be a series of, of specific, you know, ASICs and, and graphic accelerators and different types of cards coming out. All of them solving the same purpose. At some point, I think we'll probably need to come up with you know some consistency and commoditization across them, as far as languages across you know um, toolkits and you know whether it's TensorFlow or some the others. There will have to be a reckoning. But I think you know definitely in this space there will be a lot of competition very soon yeah. for the specialized chip because you know besides Bitcoin mining, um, we are starting to see a lot of interest in you know that. Massively parallel, and you know, actually, the, the proper term is embarrassing parallel, which is actually the second you know architecture tenet, which is, you know, if I dial up with padding or I dial down, whatever I do with say a picture, and let's I love examples because that really helps people understand. So let let's pick out of the uh, you know automated driving. That's one of the use cases I think I get a lot of questions about. Um and for the record, I do not believe in autonomous driving because I think that will stay in court for the probably the next decade. Um, you know, and, and really from the whole idea of it'll probably take a court to figure out what happens between whether I hit that brick wall or hit a person. Yeah, that, you know, that, that,
0: that, yeah we talked about that the, the ethical questions around auto like auto autonomous driving is an interesting one. And that's one of those that you almost wonder does the underlying ethical decisions that have been made in the models, does that have to be something that is clearly exposed to the buyer? Because that example you just said is one I've used with, uh, we had a conversation um, with uh, CTO at Hortonworks and said the question like, shouldn't I know if whichever brand I choose is either going to kill the dumb schmuck behind the wheel or, kill, or, or, or uh, is going to allow me to live and take out the pedestrian? Like, shouldn't I as a consumer know which decisions been made or is that something that the government should be mandating for That's me? That's a great so, question.
2: Yeah. That is a it fabulous question. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I'm i shocked that already we hadn't even had a, you know, a self-driving car out there in, in production, so to speak. And they're already talking about taking the steering wheel off in like, what, 2020 or something like that. It's pretty close to being, you know, it's pretty cocky. Like, yeah, we'll be good enough to have no steering wheel, no accelerator, no brake three years or two years down the road at this point. So, Keith, I agree with you. I think that this is a, it's a little bit further down the road than what everyone's saying with the self-driving cars. But I, I do have one question for you, Keith. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've talked about how we're now in this deep learning spring and winter has come and gone, and there are some constraints, compute data, uh, that caused the, the, I guess, the peaks in winter, right, in the past. What do you think the the next constraint will be to kind of, you know, preclude us or keep us from going or, you know, evolving even more with deep learning? Is it a power problem? Is it a cooling problem with GPUs? What do you you think that is?
1: I honestly think all of those are issues. Um, You know, the bigger issue to me, and so, you know, which is actually the reason why I wrote the blog, um, it's where I spend most of my time, um, is when you look at I want to build a model. Well, there's probably you know probably a hundred really great courses about how to do for a TensorFlow model. I want if I want to look at how do I you know code CUDA, which is sort of the GPU There's probably two hundred courses on how to code CUDA. There's no real great dialogue going on in the industry today about um, how do you look at your network. Uh, what types of architecture do you need to build to handle this? What are the storage requirements to be able to feed a model? How do you know when you, know, you have a bottleneck? You know, what is your GPU doing? Um, what, you know, where, where is the slow wall clock? And you know, we have all those tools in a lot of the existing infrastructures. And a lot of you know, work has been done in prior generations to put those pieces together. But to date, there's not really that conversation. And so, you know, back to we really, I think the biggest challenge is just we need to have an open dialogue about, you know, what are the impacts of different models? How do you build those? How do you account for those in your network? How do you handle, you know, the the scale of what your developer might do? And if, say, I'm a network tech or a storage person or infrastructure, and I don't really understand the math behind uh, what he's trying to do, it's not hard to crush a network or crush storage or crush compute with the capabilities that are available today in, say, a standard tensor. And so I think that's, to me, you know, the big challenge is we need to have a really good dialogue about how do we scale this.
0: So and- so on that one question, the, so you said you can crush a network, you can crush storage. And I want to go back to the embarrassing parallel thing in a second. but. How would like? How are you seeing people assess that? Because that that to me feels like one of those big gaps. If I'm a, a systems engineer or a, an architect or a data engineer, and I'm having a conversation with you know IT operations teams or even a cloud provider where I'm going to buy this stuff as a service, what how do you how do you start to know like what you need, <laughs> right? Or or how do you know that what system you maybe have already built, whether it's Hadoop based or it's something else. Do you know of ways that are, that are good assessments of this is our problem, this is where we should invest in terms of, oh, we have a network problem or we have a storage problem or we have a compute?
1: Not today. And Not that's today. Part of why I've started the conversation um, and literally where I'm, you know, I spend a lot of time actually helping folks to understand what is it they want to even do you know, because it's, I think a lot of folks, we're still in the growing phase, you know, the, the, the bleeding edge is, is started to adopt it and get in production. The leading edge, you know, so probably like two to 5% of companies are now starting to kick the tires and put it in labs. And so, you know, from that standpoint, it's, we don't have a lot of the capabilities and, and understanding out there. And so that sort of, where I'm pushing, you know, is we need to start that conversation. Even, you know, otherwise, uh, it's going to be a quick migration into fall because we're, you know, the head of infrastructure is going to be uh, pissed because we just blew up his data center. Or, you know, we need to have a way that this becomes evergreen and continues to grow. And so, though, you know, that's sort of the conversation we need to have, which is what is the impact of running, you know, a, a a convolutional neural network on a LIDAR picture, you know, or something that's coming out of an ADAS, you know, what is the impact of that? And that's sort of the conversation that's not being had, you know, and really I think what we need to do is there needs to be tooling, but there needs to be a conversation about how does this really work? Because I think that even if you Google it, you don't get a really good answer.
3: Hey, Keith, so as this thing, you know, it's, it's huge on the fringes. It's, it's a, it's growing, but what do you see being the tools that machine learning and deep learning will standardize on? So, so what companies, what applications do you see companies starting to use machine learning and deep learning to achieve business success out of?
1: So what's interesting is in almost every conversation I've had to date, no one really wants to standard on a single... And the reason why is certain libraries within certain models have stronger strengths. Um, TensorFlow is pretty much guaranteed to be in everybody's arsenal. I mean, it is the one that probably is the most referenced, used, tested, driven. Um, we see there are some you know reasons why people would want to use uh, Cafe. It tends to have some interesting features around uh, some of the computer vision problems or image recognition that people tend to like. Um, There's some other uh, libraries, uh, Cognitive Toolkit and Tiano tend to uh, go really really well when people are doing a lot of natural language processing. Um, so what I what I've seen in almost every one of my conversations is the goal to stand up an architecture that they could deploy any of those on the same architecture and have you know those would just be tools within an ecosystem. That would live on a set of architecture and you know be co-resident in at the same time. And so far it's proving to be a, a doable feat. So, you know, I would say TensorFlow is almost guaranteed to be in everybody's arsenal. And then you'd usually have a few more in there and, and I named some of them. But you know, there's probably always there's gonna be like if you're in media and entertainment, there's a couple of specialized ones within the media and entertainment industry. Um, I expect we will start to see some. You know, bespoke ones come out because we're starting to see a lot of uh, people open source some of their toolkits. So I think we'll start to see some more toolkits. Um, So, you know, for now, there's going to be a froth and a proliferation. Whether that collapses at some point is an interesting conversation.
0: So let me ask a dumb question. What's the difference between a library and a deep learning framework?
1: So a framework would be sort of how it works. Um, so, the ability for me to spin up a TensorFlow um, and run a model. Now, TensorFlow comes with its own libraries. So, there are specific libraries within TensorFlow that allow, you know, and if you use Keras, which is another higher-level API, um, you can actually go in and, you know, dial specific features. And so, you know, within there, you'll have a lot of the same models. There might be some specific permutations to those and some cases it actually makes reference to external libraries so you know a great example is most of the deep learning is very very Python centric Um, they take advantage of some of the tools like NumPy and pandas and others out there so you know you've got this rich ecosystem so while TensorFlow would be the framework on which you run you might actually be referencing um, particular elements within there from either NumPy or or SK Learn and SciPy, or you know something straight out of uh, um, Keras and, and TensorFlow itself. So it's this interesting ecosystem where they're sort of mongled, mangled together, um, not in a bad way, but you know they're they're sort of high dependencies built within at this
0: point. Okay, so you you went through kind of the the three baseline components or architectural tenants, right, you got durable storage, that's embarrassingly embarrassingly parallel and high bandwidth, which we get you got to design that right compute, it's, it might not be GPU versus CPU as much as it is a mix of some dependent upon the models and the libraries, then you've got the frameworks, which kind of seem to be uh, varied at at the very least. And as you said, growing, probably a little bit of frothing, which I love that concept. Um, the next one is, as you talked about those frameworks and those bespoke tools coexisting and cohabitating on top of that underlying architecture. And what you need there is you need some sort of an, a management and orchestration set of tools. And you listed out a handful that I think are are interesting and I want to I want to help understand, like, how important is that M and O stack in the deep learning construct?
1: Critical. Okay. And from that standpoint, it also drives even you know deeper sort of architectural discussions. And what I mean by that is, so I'd say the top you know couple that we see as far as you know the management um, sort of layer, which really you know. So tensorflow would just be a framework within there Tiana would be a framework and then how you schedule a job you know akin to say a yarn if you were working within a Hadoop construct um, kubernetes is certainly one that I would say is probably got the hottest flame right now as far as uh, a management uh, you know capability mesos is right behind that so mesosphere and sort of that approach um, there's blue data which is you know a Startup that you know, we partner with corporately, where you can do uh, you know, very similar types of uh, arrangements. And what's interesting is all three of those rely on a container construct. Mm-hmm. So here you are with a Docker or DCOS or some form of a container, which of course now, if you're in a stateless container model, the ability to bridge to stateful storage or you know overwhelm your containers with you know 10 million images. Storage, which is really going to blow out your data center, really makes it sort of an interesting challenge. Because now, really, the, the number one thing we're starting to see is containerized TensorFlow at scale using one of those management and orchestration layers.
0: Hmm. So, I guess the other one we're seeing too is you started to say that the the lines are blurring a bit between um, what would be our more traditional um, Hadoop centric orchestration tools to so things like Spark Cluster Manager, Yarn, as you said, uh, or even in the blue data space. Then you're getting into this sort of um, container cloud organization and Kubernetes, Mesosphere, Docker, and those worlds are colliding, right? Because I mean, you look at even things like uh, Hortonworks HDP 3.0, integration with containers, like all that stuff, all that's a conv- <laughs> confluence. Now you look at then, oh my gosh, we also have to include the the HPC environments, So things like Bright Cluster Manager, are huge mm-hmm. components. Like I, I honestly, like in my my seat, like professionally, I see them in as many of these conversations as any of the uh, big data players. Are you seeing the same thing?
1: Absolutely. Well, and so you know what we're seeing is you know, HPC, the use of you know NFS storage for you know deep learning. Um, th- those aren't new protocols. I mean, so you know, in some ways, we're back to the future. Because really, you know, sort of neural nets had their previous high point in the 90s. And then, you know, we sort of went, you know, all in a different way. And then Jan LeCun and some of the others actually cracked the math problem that, you know, really had limited neural networks back in the day. And now we've swung completely back to sort of the HPC construct. But a lot of the players that have been in, you know, sort of the HPC space, continue to move, you know, migrate along. So, yeah, they, they move right into the deep learning as well because, again, they were there in HPC before, you know, TensorFlow was even a dream in mama's eye. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of sort of those, you know, traditional, how am I going to manage, you know, 10,000 cores, uh, you know, however many storage, you know, devices, however many runs managing, you know, under the compute for scratch and spill space, And the ability to, you know, reboot and handle that amount of cluster requires some form of a command and control. And Bright and some of the others, you know, sort of fill the command and control space, which really, you know, so Kubernetes isn't going to reboot the box. It'll schedule it, but, you know, you've got sort of this, how am I going to command and control,
2: you know, a series
1: of, of 10 to be able to, you know, reboot it or know it's down? You know, what's my alerting if I lose a node? And so that's sort of the yeah, you've got all of sort of the the scale problems that, you know, were sort of solved in Hadoop one way, were sort of solved in HPC another way. And sort of what we're seeing is, you know, those residuals are still carrying forward because they're still needed, and now you've just piled more tools on top.
0: <laughs> so if you were so if you're sitting in front of a customer, and let's say they're not one of these um bleeding edges that already have in production and they're maybe they're leading edge and they're in the labs. And somebody came and said, Keith, look, we want your professional opinion. What do you think the right way to build something to meet the, what we, like As you said, right? It's going to be a growing, shifting, kind of juxtaposing set of requirements is going to be. What are some of the best practices that you're advising, you know, folks in industry architecturally? What should they be looking at? What should they be using as very practical things to do today to build deep learning environments that will be useful both now and in the near term?
1: Great question. Um, and it's the same advice I, I gave when, you know, Hadoop was, a, you know, in its infancy, start small. Um, so, you know, I'm in a number of conversations actively right now with customers that are looking to do POCs. The first thing I helped them do is say, great, let's not try to boil the ocean, and in you know, one of the active conversations I, I have going on where I'll be uh, in, in, in an in-depth conversation next week, we're literally going to go down and pick a few specific use cases. Not only are we going to pick a few specific use cases, we're actually going to look at um, you know, what would the architectural impact of those be. And so in one of those cases, you know, it's an image recognition problem, computer vision, and no, that is not teaching a computer to uh, see, um, despite what I get. But it is um, text recognition, picture recognition, um, the ability to do, you know, that type of a scenario. And so, you know, back to sort of the math problem I, was, uh, I got into. Um, take a 16K picture that has 132 million pixels and it will sit at about a gigabyte on storage on a CNN, so a a convolutional neural network, that will fire 132 million threads against the same file. And so, one, can your storage handle 132 million concurrent connections? Two, do you have 132 million concurrent processes that you're capable to fill that? If not, it'll handle it in in sort of a waterfall as it fills up. But, you know, think through the ramifications. So, you know, if we're going to do a PLC, Let's figure out what picture size with the POC do we have to be able to not crush the infrastructure. And so, you know, it's sort of a crawl, walk, run approach, which is, you know, let's figure out what it is you want to do. Let's make sure the math behind the model will support the POC. But that way they can start to get comfortable with, you know, let's run one model at a time and understand what that does to your network understand what that does to your storage understand what that does to compute where are the latency and the bottlenecks how can you tell if your gpus are busy or not busy how can you tell if your computer is busy or not busy you know where is the wall clock wait and so what we're doing is just a very very scientific very very from the basics approach but we're doing it with active real use cases that meet the customer's needs. So sort of, you know, building it up, you know, the, I'd say the biggest thing I've seen that really causes a lot of drama with customers are they want, they run a POC, they think it's really good, then they deploy it and say run all these 80 things on it at the same time.
0: Yeah. So I, one thing I want to want to dig into is you you work in an, an organization uh, within Dell EMC that has some, some interesting products, um, that as w- that really fill a neat, interesting space in one of those four key component uh, are tenants architecturally that we've talked about. And that's that concept of durable storage that can handle high bandwidth, embarrassing and parallel. So help me understand this this product that you you and your team are out talking about in the market and selling. What is it and how does it fit in the context of this architecture?
1: So what's interesting is when we look at you know, sort of the problem, to your point, bandwidth is king in all this problem, not just in storage, but in the network as well, but bandwidth is king. So the ability to deliver a certain concurrency level across you know, a given form factor. So how many gigabytes per second can I deliver in you know, say a 4U uh, structure? And then not only that, how many concurrent connections to any given subsystem or file can I handle on any 4U chassis? And so those are the two things that I spend a lot of my time playing with, which is what are what I call the sharp edges. How many, you know, can I unleash a million concurrent connections against one 4U? Well, great question. Um, you know, and so some of that's part math, some of that's part trial and error to figure out. And so, yes, we we have been looking a lot at it. Mostly because we've had some uh, bleeding-edge customers who have actually started using it, who have shared sort of their journey with us. Um, And, you know, not every journey is totally seamless, but at the same time, it's definitely been an interesting eye-opener. But what's interesting is, you know, our product's heritage comes from sort of the, you know, what I'll call embarrassingly parallel approach. So, you know, if you like to do streaming sound or streaming media, you can't really have a whole lot of uh, locks on the file or you're suddenly going to really have a problem when everybody on the internet decides they love that new song on, you know, pick your whatever service or, you know, want to watch the same uh, media. And so, you know, there's sort of this idea that you can have a read without a lock. And so that's where, you know, we've sort of approached it, you know, historically and what's interesting now is um, as sort of the tensor flows and deep learning takes off in our network, that's actually a very valuable commodity because most of the actual file systems out there, you know, still a database term, uh, do an optimistic lock. And What I mean by that is every, they assume every open may potentially do a write. So when you start to manage latches in the background, when you start to manage different you know, lock mechanisms, at some point you reach an ability of so many users into a given file causes a problem, which then, you know, exasperates itself as latency. And if you get enough connections into, there's a fun math term they refer to as an asymptote, which basically means it goes to zero and nothing will respond. Um, And so from that standpoint, you know, what we're really seeing is, you know, it's really a fun, interesting time because you now have, um, you know, things that were interesting in another, Subsegment that are now extremely valuable in this subsegment, which, if you go back to uh, innovator's dilemma, is really how uh, you know he says everything gets crushed is by something that's been applied to a new use. Um, so, for our standpoint, we're we're extremely you know interested in this because you know it plays to our heritage of where we come from with Isilon and some of our storage, but at the same time, um, you know our customers were the first people to start deploying this on and then came back to us and say, hey, we did this, we love it, but can you look at this or can you look at that? And so that was sort of the genesis was they actually started doing it even without our knowledge and then started uh, saying, hey, it works great, but, you know, can you help here? And so that's actually what started my journey into this was in order to help them. And then we started putting a lab going, hey, this does really work well. And to your point, now that, you know, deep learning is sort of uh, one of the hottest topics in the uh, sort of ecosystem, it gets very very interesting at that point.
2: So Keith, I want to shift a little bit and talk about the business. Um and you know, you're talking about bleeding edge and as the use cases for deep learning are growing more and more, uh and as organizations begin to or continue their journey with deep learning, can you share some uh, cool stories about um you know what you're seeing out there?
1: Sure. So so I've got some customers that, you know, probably not nice to reference. Um But they've been, you know, a couple of them have weaponized, to use my term, TensorFlow, um, and, you know, have some very, very big installs. And, you know, what's interesting is um, they were actually doing it on some older hardware, and it was really working pretty well. And so now as we look at some of the Gen 6, you know, it even brings Gator capabilities. And so that sort of started, you know, our understanding. And now we really have, you know, Every industry, you know, if you look at you know a couple of the, the truly innovators in every industry, and what I mean by that is, I've got a couple in financial services, we've got a couple in media and entertainment, we've got a couple in um, the uh, the life sciences and healthcare space, where they're on the journey, and what I mean by that is. The conversation really, in a couple of them, started with, you know, what do you know about? And that quickly morphed into, you know, I can have, me personally, can have a conversation all the way up to the management orchestration layer and talk through, you know, use cases, architectural considerations. How does that marry up with your use cases? And it's really turned into a dialogue where, you know, we corporately are, you know, having dialogues with them about, you know, what is it you're trying to do. And then literally we can break down into the use cases and then give them guidance about here's how to run a POC. In some cases we're helping them run the POC to understand, you know, how they can consume it, how they're comfortable with it. And so that's sort of driving it. But you know, it's right now we're sitting on about 15 different organizations, all of them very, very large, who are, you know, when I mean large, billion-dollar um, multinational corporations, who are, you know, really trying to figure out how do they bring this in and, you know, not really break their architectural tenets. You know, they want security. They want backup. They want, you know, all the good practices. But they also want to be able to do this, you know, and in, in some of the scale aspirations I've heard are off the chart. They're not there today, but, you know, some of the things they want to do, the size would be massive.
3: Hey, Keith, what industries are you seeing in, uh, embrace deep learning and machine learning quicker?
1: Um, probably the top ones I've seen, uh, financial services, media and entertainment, oil and gas, um, healthcare life sciences. You know, so genomics, it, it, you know, the, the curing of medicine Um, You know, the ability to, you know, deploy um, some of the, uh, either the PAX images we're seeing or even medical swabs um, is off the chart. Um, Some of the, uh, you know, financial services, we're starting to, you know, so trader surveillance, the ability to actually add governance and regulatory type of things on top um, is really taking off. Um, media entertainment is really uh, adopting oil and gas, so the, the ability to actually you know, use sort of deep learning and sort of, and, and in that case, it's actually for targeting oil reserves instead of actually on the existing drilling platform. So, you know, we're really starting to see what saw a true cross-pollination across a lot of difference. And auto is probably the oldest. I mean, auto has, if you look at, you know, what they refer to as ADAS or fence driving, is probably the forebearer of almost all of this.
0: Yeah, actually, you you bring up one which doesn't become immediately self-evident to me, which is media and entertainment. So unpack that a little bit for me. Like What what sort of conversations are you having in that space where they're thinking, huh, deep learning, that's what I want to do?
1: So This one caught me off guard at first until I started digging in. And then when I started to hear what they've done, it's hilarious. So there's two, one, uh, two sort of uh, use cases that I've seen. One of them I find completely fascinating, and you know it sort of plays on sort of labor arbitrage sort of approach. So there is a major Emmy house that does movies. They literally had deep learning create a trailer for their movie, and so what they did was they fed it a series of clips from the movie and then let the deep learning algorithm figure out how to stitch together a trailer that met a certain time criteria and a certain set of element criteria. What I've heard is that the, if an individual human had done it, that would have taken 30 days. The actual deep learning bot did it in less than 24 hours. What? Um, yeah. And actually, what I hear is it's actually as good as if a human did it. The other use case is a little more business-focused. And what I mean by that is um, what we're finding is they're taking movie successes, is a great way to say it. So which movies made money? Which movies lost money? What elements were included in those movies? So plot twists, um, themes, different things. And they're actually using deep learning to sort of adjust the flow and adjust the elements within movies to potentially include some elements that may have been, you know, in a similar movie that made a whole lot of money, you know, was a box office success. So they're actually using it behind the scenes to sort of craft sort of, you know, the way a movie might flow or some scenes you might want to include or different elements. And so really they're using it sort of to help figure out how to have another box office success.
0: That's crazy because actually, I just <laughs> just brought up to mind that we talked about in our very first episode of uh, the Big Data Beard Podcast. We talked about how some of the movie houses were talking about putting uh, cameras into the theaters to uh, to monitor how people reacted. Um, you know, facial expression, body language, right? Everything their reactions to the movies, so that they could understand you know, the emotional response that their product creates and if good, like start to do some interesting analysis of how to make better movies, which is, that's just a really interesting use case. <laughs> it's wild. Well, um, good.
1: Well, it, it plays into a lot of the use cases that started in machine learning, um, and now really have carried forward to deep learning are really less what I'll call the classic, um, I want to you know, suddenly grow my, my uh, pie tons or I want to suddenly want to save costs and are more on sort of the angle of I want to do what I do better. And so you know, that's really what we're seeing is a lot of use cases like this. The goal is to make more money, but they're a lot more targeted, to your point, to understand how do we make better movies? Uh, how do I run my business better? Um, you know, and so that's really what we're seeing a lot of the financial services type of use cases are exactly that. How do I run my business better is really the strongest use case in financial services right now for deep learning.
0: Interesting. Now, one thing I do know about you is that, um, and this is publicly stated that you have a background and history, uh, working with the, uh, the federal government. Uh, I'm guessing, I'm guessing this stuff is actually, I'm, I'm guessing there's a few agencies who are doing some things, uh, in deep learning.
1: There are, but I can't tell you who.
0: <laughs> Darn uh, I wasn't um, trying to mess up your, uh, your pass or anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, let's be really clear. You've got um, capabilities that um, really in the open source at a very reasonable cost. You know, so licensing of TensorFlow is free. The ability to scale unlimitedly on you know lots of data and signal and noise yes i could say you would probably expect that the signal intelligence agencies um you know would be very interested in this type of technology
0: that's funny you just used the silicon angle cube tv's uh slogan we extract the signal from the noise that's <laughs> pretty funny very true well, Keith, this has been fun. I, I enjoyed the conversation because we learned a bit more about the architectural tenants that make up uh, deep learning environments. We, we talked about architectures that are important things to plan for, not to boil the ocean, focus on making the business better and using tools that are broadly available today and keeping an eye on some of those trends in technology like autonomous cars and others before we jump too far.
2: We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew.
0: What I want you to do is I want you to sit back, relax, and give me the first thing that comes to mind whenever I ask you this question. You ready? Sure. What year will Skynet go online?
1: 2100.
0: If you bought me a book, what would it be? Probably How to Groom Your Beard. Hey. Easy, Hot Rod. I got a beard, too, now. <laughs> I'm proud of you. He joined the club. So that's, okay, hang on, time out. Okay, beard, that's awesome. Two, lives in the southeast. I'm, I've said this before, the deep south. Dixie is the place where data science is getting real. Anyways, thanks for that. Um, number three, what genre of music are you rocking right now? Country. Classic. What is your favorite piece of utterly useless tech?
1: Utterly useless?
0: Yeah, just, um, like, just something ridiculous. It's like, I have this, but it's kind of dumb.
1: Because I got a lot of ton of stuff. I'm trying to figure out what Actually, my smartwatch, because yep. uh, I haven't actually worn it in about eight months.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I think you're like the fifth vote for the uh, smartwatch being just generally useless. Okay, what is your biggest money pit right now?
1: Probably my toys, which would be um, either my mountain bikes Ooh. or my, uh, my collection of uh, useless uh, Raspberry Pis and Movidius and, and other sort of uh, techie gadgets
3: I got floating around my office. What's been your uh, favorite use of the Raspberry Pi so far?
1: Uh, Actually, I have a couple of, I have a few uh, Raspberry Pis with Movidius Intel chips on them. So if you know what that is, that's actually, you can turn your Raspberry Pi into a deep learning machine for about 150 bucks. No kidding. No kidding. And literally, so I actually have it, uh, I've got it, it's trained on a certain set of models. So I actually feed data into it and it runs some uh, regressions for me on on something that uh, I do for kicks and giggles. So uh, I'm a big mountain biker, and so it actually chews on um, some of the data that comes off my garment just for fun.
4: Oh, that's pretty cool.
3: I thought I was doing well with, uh, you know, virtualizing video games on the thing, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Keith, I know one of the things you do a lot is you travel, so are you going anywhere exceptionally interesting soon?
1: Um, great question. Uh, let's see, what's in my plans? Love Seattle, be there soon. Love New York, be there soon. Uh, Love London, be there soon. Um, Got a Miami floating in there. Hey, now. uh, And possibly even a Vegas. Oh, I mean, so, you know, all fun places. So, actually, all the places I'm going are fun.
0: Nice. I like it. Okay. Last question. What show, and it doesn't have to be TV, it could be Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever you're into, what show are you binging on right now?
1: Uh, It's the one where they make knives. The, uh, The forging show.
0: Oh yeah, um, I can't think of the name of it. Remember the- yeah, my I've- blade
1: masters. Yeah. Does that no? Be- it's not that. It's the one on History Channel.
0: Yeah, it's the History Channel one. That, yeah. Forged in
1: fire. Forged in fire. That's there. You go. Awesome.
0: Well, that's an awesome show. I do enjoy it, and uh, just don't carry any large blades while on your mountain bike. You could hurt yourself.
1: Or in the airport, they don't like that.
0: Generally speaking, also true. Keith, thank you so much for being on today. This has been a super fun conversation. Kyle, Brett, thank you for being, actually all of you, thank you for growing your beards and thank you for being awesome.
2: If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you like big data and you like to learn. Well, we do too. And that's why we partnered with O'Reilly Media as a community partner for their incredible strata data and artificial intelligence conferences that are taking place around the world. If you would like a 20% discount on these conferences, Simply use the promo code PCBeard at checkout, or you can click the link in our show notes.
0: It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Big Data Beard podcast. As a thank you for listening to our show, we'd like to offer you a chance to win a free pass to Strata Conference in San Jose, March 6th through the 8th of 2018. To enter, all you need to do is either subscribe to our mailing list at bigdatabeard.com forward slash follow or submit a review in iTunes rating our podcast. Or you can do both and be entered for two chances to win. We will hold a random drawing in early January and make the announcement of the winner by January 31st. And don't forget, you can get a 20% discount to attend any of O'Reilly's Strata Data or AI conferences globally. Simply use the link in our show notes or promo code PCBeard at checkout and tune into future episodes for chances to win free passes to these awesome conferences. Thanks for listening and let that beard grow.
1: We're not done yet? No, we're not done. So hang on. It's just it's a few quick questions.
0: And what I want you to do is sit back, relax, and just kind of say the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you these questions, okay? It won't hurt. We'll be easy on you. Or maybe you be easy on us. Yeah, Dean is an ass. Dean is an ass.
1: <laughs> Hashtag.
0: All right. So what year do you think Skynet will go online? I don't know. <laughs> okay. If you bought me a book, what would it be? Ooh. Hmm. Or maybe best book you read in 2017.
4: (laughs) I didn't have time to read. I was busy building product and talking to customers. (laughs) That's all right. Come on. No, it's probably some of the tipping point stuff, Malcolm Gladwell.
0: Yeah, big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, What genre of music are you uh, currently into? Wow.
4: I went to see Wellie Nelson Night Before Last. Awesome. Although I don't like country music,
0: yeah, but Willie's
4: I happen to s- find super talented it. musicians everywhere. Uh, very entertaining.
0: That's awesome. Literally, we had a guest uh, guest on a show. You're, I think, you're the only two people that have said like the same artist, which is awesome. Way to go, Willie. Um, and it, so let's go to the next one. What is your favorite piece of just utterly useless or goofy technology?
4: My favorite. Useless technology is the windshield wipers in my car. (laughs) (laughs) Says the guy. I live in San Diego. Oh, that's awesome. Once
2: a month, once a year? No, no, well, no, (laughs) here's the thing.
4: They're way over-engineered. And every time you turn them on and off, when they come to a rest, it'll flip halfway so that every other time it'll rest on the opposite side of the rubber blade. Oh, goodness. In San Diego, where it never rains, and I actually never turn them on. Nice.
0: What is your biggest money pit right now? Personal money pit.
4: My biggest personal money pit? Uh Um, It's either my wife or my dog or perhaps the two of them combined. Family. Got it. Okay. And are you going anywhere really interesting or cool soon? I will be in Mumbai in four days and that's always cool
0: and interesting. It is. India is super fun. Uh, And then are you binging on any particular show right now? Uh, like on your flight to Mumbai, are you going to be rocking any Netflix downloads? <laughs> uh, I,
4: you know, I've watched all of the ones that I wanted to, uh, binge out on. I would say I'm really looking forward to the new season of Homeland. Oh, excellent. All right. Which will not be available in time for my 24-hour flight to uh, Mumbai. Bummer. So you
0: just
2: got to rewatch all the uh, previous seasons.
0: There you go. We'll load up. Well, Scott, it's been super fun to have you on. We really appreciate it. Scott now, again, from uh, Horton Works here at uh, Horton Works Sales Kickoff for 2018. Thanks again and thanks for tuning in.